My name is Bryce Edwards and I'm a lecturer at the School of Government at Te Heranga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, as well as being a director at the Democracy Project. Today I'm going to be chatting with Sir Martin Weavers, who has a long and distinguished career as a senior public servant and diplomat. His achievements were such that in 2012 he was knighted for his contributions to public service. But he started out as a diplomat. His 22-year career at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs included stints as High Commissioner to Papua New Guinea and Ambassador to Japan. He was also Personal Secretary in the Beehive to Prime Minister David Lange during the fraught 1980s and filled many other public roles which we'll talk about today. Most interestingly, he was Chief Executive of DPMC, the Department for Prime Minister and Cabinet, for eight years during the Helen Clark and John Key years. He is currently Registrar of Pecuniary and Specified Interests of Members of Parliament. Welcome, Sir Martin. Good, thank you. Okay, so of course you were also a student at this university, so you did a, a science degree, an arts degree, and honours. What did you study, Sir Martin? Well, I came from the Wairarapa where I'd grown up, and started university in 1970, and uh, began a science degree, majoring in pure and applied mathematics, which had not very much to do with my subsequent career, so that's uh, an interesting point in itself. Then at the end of my science degree, I didn't really think I was um, smart enough to go on and do honours. The people I was in, in the class with were super bright. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll think about it. And the way I thought about it was by spending a year at teacher's training college, um, becoming a maths teacher. Oh. But I very quickly decided, like within the first couple of weeks, that I didn't feel my brain had been stretched far enough and I still had things to learn. So I went back to university doing a very interesting course uh, which they called the transitional certificate. Uh, they described it as the knight's move so it was one side raising three up so I did stage one, two and three economics in a year and then went into the economics honours course the following year so it was very intense for that transitional certificate and then at the end of that I uh, did an honours degree in economics. Wow, mm. but I mean these things aren't always wasted are they? Oh I mean, a- well, absolutely well, wasn't wasted like, Bryce. I no. mean it's a bit of a, a cliche but Bob Jones you know you always used to talk yeah. about he'd only hire arts graduates with that idea that they learnt skills rather than the subject areas. No it's the, it's the ability to think and well firstly I'd say that the university in those days there were 5,000 students um, and now there are well over 20,000. Yeah. The campus was much smaller, there was no downtown campus. I had the great pleasure of being offered a place as, as a boy from the country in Weir House where I met a whole lot of people from all over the world. I mean, a lot of Colombo Plan students. Do you still know any student. of them? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, it, was, it was a defining feature of our university experience. No, I went to Malaysia and uh, Thailand and other places and, and visited. They're still friends. In fact, I had a message from somebody just the other day. So those are 50-year friendships. Um, and there was a Weir House reunion... Um, and it was great to catch up with people and okay. to see what they'd done, and their paths are very different, and they'd, you know, so it was a very, it was a very intimate campus. Well, the campus would have been smaller then. I mean, right now we're speaking in the Hunter yeah. building, and uh, this is where I had my physics lectures. Oh, okay. Yeah, well. and some of my uh, maths lectures. Of course, so. in those days, yes, we didn't have the campus down in Papatia. No, but. Do you think the relationship between the university and the town and gown relationship has improved? Because in those days they did seem a bit more separate. The university was the university. It was the university on the hill. You know, yeah. that's, that's what it was. I think that the downtown campus has certainly changed, I think, the way in which the city and the university interact, and I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, I've noticed it more than any other university yeah. I've been involved in, that there is that real yeah. interaction. So it was, a, it, was a great, it was a great time. 
did. I made a lot of friends. I learned a lot. What uh, about politics? So you have ah, been, well, politics has been a huge part of your life, yeah. you know, especially behind the well, scenes. Well, I was. But I was, what about in I those was days? The, the big issues of the day, of course, were the, the All Black tours. Um, Heart was a very big thing, which I was actively involved in. Okay. I also became involved in the the Native Forest Action Council, which then generated the Maruya Declaration, which mm. petitioned for the complete cessation of the logging of native bush. A lot of the bush was being milled, the state forests they were, um, and part of the petition was brought up with a lot of support. It was the biggest petition subsequent to Manapuri uh, to save the dam, was to, to separate the commercial interest forestry in New Zealand under Crown ownership from the conservation ones. Okay. And that led to the establishment of the Department of Conservation and the Ministry for the Environment. So those sorts of movements... Were, I mean, it was a very... I mean, Values Party would have been around... 1972 was the first time the Values Party ran on the campaign. Yeah. No, there was a lot. And one of our wardens at Weir House, uh, David Shand, uh, mm. ran for Wellington Central as a Labour candidate. And um, there were a lot of big issues. And, uh, you know, the nuclear arms race was still going. And, and of course, Murrah Atoll, nuclear mm. testing in the Pacific. They were very big issues. Uh, and what about student politics, per se, like VUSA, the Student Association? Yeah, I never ran for that. I wasn't... Um, but student meetings, oh, those yeah, student sort of things. Meetings. And there were always, you know, lectures and, and lunchtime meetings where people would get up and speak. And when I came back the second time as a mature student, so-called, I was asked to go back to Warehouse again because they wanted some more mature students there with the younger ones. Um, and as part of that, I was asked to be a buddy for the three first Chinese students that ever came to New Zealand. Incredible. Which would have been 1974. They wore Mao suits. Um, they'd never been overseas, um, they were here to study English, and there were no other Chinese students anywhere in the country. So the very first ones came and stayed in Warehouse and studied at Victoria. And they, became, you know, one of them um, got in touch with me years later, 25 years later, because he had become China's climate change ambassador. And he came back to Wellington on official business, and they said, is there anything you'd like to do? He said, yes, I'd like to find Martin Weavers and have dinner with him. Wow. So, so that was your first foray into international relations? Oh, yeah, yeah. And did that have any impact on you becoming a diplomat? I mean, how did you transition from being a student to... Well, that's a very interesting question. I was sitting... After I did finish my honours degree in economics, I was offered a a role as a junior lecturer. Uh, It was a sort of three-year appointment, and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go on and do academic work, or I was pondering whether to do a PhD. I decided not to. Uh, But I was sitting at my desk one day, marking exam papers at the end of the year, and I had a phone call from somebody at Foreign Affairs, and they said, uh, oh, we hear you're looking for a job. I said, no. <laughs> and they said, well, we're looking to recruit economists. Would you like a cup of tea? So I didn't even know what foreign affairs did. So out of the blue, they rang. It was a small town. And um, obviously, they'd heard about me or knew me or something. And um, so I went down there. And then eventually, about 80 months later, I joined the Ministry of Foreign so Affairs and Trade. But you kind of make it sound quite random. Like It was very it, random. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the point about you know what people studied, Bryce, was true. Because in the year that I joined, there were people who had done degrees in philosophy. Yeah. There were a couple of people who had done languages, but not many. Um, but there, was a very, there, were, there were a couple of lawyers, scientists, mm. a very wide range of thinking capacities. And I remember the chief executive of the day, although we didn't call him then, he was the secretary, Mr. Corner, before I went off to Tokyo for the first time. But he said, no, it's really good to have people who've got mathematics and economic skills here. We need a diverse range of skills. And so that's when I went to Japan and I learned to speak Japanese. I had two years studying Japanese full-time in Yokohama. So you studied for two years, then worked the, as the, yeah, representing yeah. New Zealand? Yeah. Okay. So Louise and I were married just before we went, and um, I'd had about uh, two years in Wellington before I went to Japan. 
Uh, and even though I knew I was joining the foreign ministry, it never occurred to me to lean forward and say, I'd really like to learn a foreign language. I mean, I had friends who'd gone off and learned Chinese, friends who'd gone and learned Arabic, and I never sort of thought, oh, I'd like to do that. But okay. then they came and said, would you like to do Chinese or Japanese? And so I was very surprised, you know, so so naive. And I said, yep. Which actually I, I got asked a lot about when I was um, later at, at DPMC, and I was talking to younger public servants about career path, but they, they were keen to know how it was that I'd made it mm. to a seat on the eighth floor of the Beehive as the chief executive being, you know, the principal advisor to the prime minister of the country, as though there were sort of a yellow brick road that sort of, as long as you found this thing, you followed this thread and you just ended up there, which of course never happens. Look, like I think that. this is a really important point, but you can't really tell these people that are asking, no. take a random path no. or... But you can tell them to be ready yeah, for so, And so I was, I was greatly uh, blessed um, in my career by having senior colleagues and managers and bosses in various roles who saw something in me that I didn't see myself and they stretched me by putting me into new roles. And I think I took that on as a lesson myself to say one of your biggest roles when you're a chief executive or a senior manager is to nurture your talent because that's basically your principal role. It's not to do the job yourself. It's to surround yourself with really good staff. Is that common? I mean, to what extent does that actually happen? Oh, well, a lot of my colleagues, and when I was a chief executive for eight years in DPMC, that's one of their principal things. Um, it's difficult if you're you know, running MSD and you've got 12,000 staff, mm. but DPMC was quite small. And I always took the view that the Prime Minister deserved the best quality staff she or he could mm. get. It was my job to find the staff. And if it didn't quite work out, we'd say thank you. And, we'd, you know, it was never a, a, a difficulty if, if it didn't quite work out. But some people clicked better than others and some people were better than others. But your job always was to search for people, um, again, who brought a wide diversity of experience and view into the mm. beehive because okay. they, they were serving the leader of the country okay. and our democracy. So all of those sorts of themes around stable and effective and accountable and lawful democratic government are things that I've become a very, very strong advocate for. Which is quite a long way, as I say to people, from studying pure mathematics. If you're open to taking new opportunities, things... There must be some things that, say, a, a contemporary undergrad student could do um, that might be more conducive to paths opening up, surely. There must be some subject areas... Well, I don't wish to be you know, critical of the political science area, mm. Bryce, but um, <laughs> Critique I, is I, I, didn't, I didn't have hardly any MFAT colleagues who had done political science. Yeah. You know. So it was about your analytical skills, and there are different ways you can do that. Um, so you can, there are multiple paths that you can follow to sort of have a successful or, or an interesting and a contributing career in public service. But what I used to say to my staff, if they were asking for career advice, I said, don't think too far ahead. Mm -hmm. If you're 33 and you think I'd really like to be the Secretary of the Treasury, mm -hmm. I said, put that in the cupboard. The only thing you have got control over is the role you are currently undertaking. So what you need to do is deliver the very best you can in your current role Make sure that you know you understand it well, that you innovate, that you're bringing ideas to the table, that you deliver well, and then you know other things will come along. That's all you all you can do. And for example, working in government, I had numerous discussions with a then government statistician, a guy called Brian Pink, about the deep decline in mathematics, and it's gone much much worse. You know, so mm. I think that's mm. a national risk. Yeah. The education system, in some respects, is that all that business about the STEM subjects, it's, it's lost the plot a bit. 
And there's a real problem with the quality of teaching, especially at schools. Um, it's very difficult to recruit uh, those teachers. And I think that we just need to have some really different new approaches to that sort of thing. Any, anything you want to throw in? Is, uh... I just think we, you know, we need to give some priority. I mean, the STEM project is a good one, but it's undercooked, mm. you know, and that needs more resource. It needs better leadership. And those are more areas for the education system, the universities themselves. Um, who have a lot of autonomy in this space. And things do always change, of course, you know, because you can't ever p- completely predict the future, no. and it's not a planable event. Mm. And then there are events when you get so into foreign affairs or, or DPMC, you have earthquakes and tsunamis and pandemics and financial crises and stuff, and when you're sitting there serving the Prime Minister, whoever it is, and the Cabinet, they don't have to say, gosh, I, I wish this hadn't come along. They have to deal with it. And that's, that's where the pressure really applies, so, and they need good advice uh, to support good decision-making. In terms of those big or tumultuous events, you know, do any stand out as being kind of the, your major challenges of your career when you've had to... Well, there were some, yeah, there were some that I observed and some that I had, you know, when I was a chief executive, that I had a more active role in providing advice on. So the ones I observed were, some of them were when I was working for David Longy as private secretary. At the time we were there, it was Rainbow Warrior. It was the, the, the nuclear dispute with the United States had, had just broken. Um, I got back in March. The Buchanan was refused in, in February. Um, there were the Fiji coups, you know, and there was the, it was the first term of that very reforming government. So mm. that was full on. And it was, it was a major economic crisis, of course. Because of, I saw that at very close... Proximity. So that was an enormous privilege. A role as a private secretary. I was an informal advisor from time to time. He'd say, this is the advice from the department, Martin, what do you think? And of course you would always have to offer a view. You know, your role there is to be, is to facilitate the flow of paper and the messages and to carry signals back and to, to marshal the stuff for the PM. But you, you do, you know... Some, sometimes it appears that that didn't go so well, according to the history books in David Longy's office. So, you know, it was a highly fraught time, wasn't it? Well, um, you were dealing with so many factions. Oh, yeah. And, well, and, I, I mean, and, I wasn't, I wasn't involved agendas. at all in, in the politics of it. And that became much clearer in structural terms after Geoffrey Palmer introduced the concept of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Okay. Um, because that is a public service entity, which is the one that I led, filled with impartial public servants mm. and other people seconded from the private sector or recruited, as opposed to the Prime Minister's office, mm. which is the home of the political staff. Mm. When David Longy was there, mm. there was no such structure. So the advisory group had both... Uh, public servants and political advisors in it, and some of that would have been a bit fuzzy. It was fuzzy, and that's why Geoffrey Palmer's initiative mm. to establish DPMC, which was the model they had in Australia, mm. was a very, very good constitutional step for New Zealand, and it's clarified that. Okay. And both John Key and Helen Clark said publicly on occasions that it was very important for them to have uh, DPMC shepherding and providing advice in consultation with other agencies to the Prime Minister, which is impartial, which is policy-based advice and does not take account of, of political interests, as well as the advice they get from the Prime Minister's office. And then, of course, they would have to make the call, which is exactly what the, mo- the model should be. So 
You've had a career, Sir Martin, that's been highly distinguished and you've been highly professional and you've got a reputation for that. Um, you've mentioned at the start that you were involved in uh, environmentalism and anti-racism sort of causes. Um, how did you square with having those political involvements with then becoming a public servant? And Did that have an influence on you and did you have to suppress? No, I mean, I, the, um, your, your private views are something, especially the, the further you get up the ladder, in the public service are things that you bury deeper and deeper and deeper into your your inner being. I never talked politics with any of the people I served with. That was just the culture, you know, and that, mm. that in almost all cases, you know, but, well respected. But that would be different when you were the private secretary for Longy because that wasn't... Uh, no, but that was, a, that, that was not... That was a, it was still a seconded, impartial... Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, sure. So, you um, know, the, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at the time, was giving David Longy advice about how to deal with the Americans or what we should be doing in relation to the Rainbow Warrior or, mm. you know, the Dominique Prieur and yeah. Marfar and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and that was about international law and what we permitted. And my role was there to, was to, if the Prime Minister had a question, to make sure it could be answered and to facilitate the flow of proper advice. But the politics of it all and what he was saying to people and the way he dealt with it in the media and stuff, that was all dealt by... Ross Vintner and mm. the other people in the team, who included Stephen Mills at the time. Of course. Who okay. I got to know very well. So when I was at EPMC, of course, we had the Canterbury earthquakes. Yes. There was the global financial crisis. There was the Rena sinking, Pike River, any number of, of things. And they, when they, as they, they happen, and, you know, part of the role of the chief executive of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet is to chair the national crisis management and security systems. DPMC used to run national exercises every year, you know, um, so that we would simulate what happened. And mm. those were absolutely vital in making sure that the systems were prepared so that when the balloon went up, you understood what the powers were, who was in charge, all that sort of stuff. And, of course, as they say, you know, no battle plan survives the first encounter with the enemy. Um, so when something happens, as with the pandemic, although we did have a pandemic plan and it had been successfully used in the past and it informed the first stages of this pandemic, mm. This was not just a wave, this was a big tsunami, mm. and a lot of the underlying assumptions got blown out. So then you have to improvise, and that's tough, but that's, mm. that's what the leadership is. So there's actually very little knowledge I find in the public or when I talk to students about what DPMC is. Yeah. It's, you know, we, everyone knows about other departments, but that one seems to be almost flying below the radar. People kind of assume it's part of the Beehive, part of the Prime Minister's office, which is, of course, separate from this. So, yeah, Well, how, I've had members of Parliament in, uh, when I've been at select committees asking about what my role is in the Prime Minister's office, and I've had to correct them. I say, mm. I don't work in the Prime Minister's office. I'm appointed by the State Services Commissioner. We are impartial public servants. We are there to loyally serve the government of the day according to the law, you know, and we just have to constantly do that. There's a book that's come out from Canterbury University, um, and I was invited to write a chapter, and I wrote it on decision-making in the New Zealand Westminster system, and it's about impartiality, the cabinet system, how cabinet committees work, what the role of officials is in relation to that. Because we have a very strong and robust and intimate democracy in this country, mm. which I think is an absolutely invaluable national asset. It's flexible, it's responsive, but it still has to deal with a lot of stuff which is really tough and, and where things go wrong. And so a central part of that is the machinery of government, yep. the, the public service, the core public service, the government departments, which you know have a very strong reputation, they're 
often getting high in international indexes yeah. for um, you know for their performance. Uh, but I sort of feel that we don't necessarily scrutinise them enough, um, and that's kind of quite right to some degree um, because they go on they work behind the scenes and they work quite yeah. well in New Zealand. But um, I think there's always a case for uh, drilling well, my, down a bit and and, and, <laughs> sure. and and trying to work out how well the public service is performing. And so I thought maybe you could give some ideas of what's changed from the time that you entered the public service to when you left. What What's different? Oh, well, I mentioned DPMC. That's a, yeah, you know, an innovation. That's so we, we've had well. a number of agencies. I mean, we do rearrange. I mean, you think of the reforms of the 1980s, the whole process of corporatisation. Now, you know, there are, there are some who say that you know a lot of bad things came out of that period i don't really agree with that it was a very tough time if if changes hadn't been made to new zealand in the 1984s we would have ended up like argentina or greece so that that was what the government of the day was for. but you're talking about the economic reforms yeah but taking areas that were commercial like post and railways mm. and telecommunications mm. and all that sort of stuff out of court public agencies mm. and establishing them with a proper board and and giving them a, a specific mandate and winding them up and letting them go has been a very significant um, improvement in mm. New Zealand. And there have been other changes too in the structure, but it's not so really much the structure, that, you know, the, the culture of New Zealand's democracy is very strong. You know, we've had independently appointed chief executives in the New Zealand Public Service since, Bryce, 1912. Sure, yes, and that was okay, a Which is very of, unusual. Yeah. In Australia, chief yeah. executives are employed, their contractors with the Prime Minister of Australia, so mm. that's innately political. Yeah. And I think um, it's something to yeah celebrate and protect. And, and protect, uh, exactly. Uh, so the changes that there have been, I mean, I think the, the, the agenda has expanded enormously. Um, there are enormous areas of, you know, we've talked about environment and conservation, the whole business about the, the treaty resolution process mm, yes. and uh, co-management and social policy. Those are all things which sort of are part and parcel of a modern society and an ageing society. Our international... I mean, since I joined Foreign Affairs in 1977, our economic links have diversified enormously. Mm. I mean, even in those days, we were sending more than half of our exports to the United mm. Kingdom. Mm. And now it's 4 or 5%. And the great preponderance of our international relationships are in the APEC grouping. I was also, of course, involved in APEC, APEC. in 1999. And that really... You know, New Zealand prime ministers never had the opportunity to meet the president of the United States or the president of China or the president of Korea on a regular basis. So that's created uh, an international collaborative network amongst our neighbours, our principal neighbours, with whom, you know, our economic ties are so important and they determine the prosperity of this country. So that international architecture has been constructed uh, in our lifetimes mm. and it's uh, incredibly valuable. Now, Sue Martin, you've brought up sort of the politicisation of, or these mm. arguments of politicisation of other public servants, but what about um, the arguments that here in New Zealand it's becoming uh, politicised? I think you and I were in a, a university meeting where one of my senior colleagues made the argument that the university tries to create graduates that are critical thinkers for government departments so that they can provide a number of different options for ministers and you know to give them fair and free mm. uh, advice. Um, and he said, but... His observations of government departments is they don't really want that anymore and that um, the politicisation has gone too far under this and previous governments. But, I mean, that's just one person's... I didn't agree with that uh, analysis. Um, I think, you know, where's the evidence? I think it is a, is a perpetual challenge, and it's especially true for chief executives, to ensure that you uphold the requirement to loyally serve the government of the day to the best of your ability and provide free and frank and fearless advice mm. in all situations. 
Um, and, you know, there are occasions when ministers certainly don't welcome the advice that they're given. And there are some occasions, I'm sure, and I know, when officials, you know, are keen to make sure that they produce something which the minister wants. Um, now, th- there's a tricky balance there mm. because, I mean, government has been elected on a mandate and if they decide they want yeah. to go in this direction or do that, your personal view of whether it's a good idea or not is completely irrelevant and should never be brought into the discussion. Your role is to assist the legally elected government of the day. Mm. If they say they want to climb mountain A and that's, that's their objective, then your job with your colleagues is to say, well, this is how you might do it. Uh, this is how much it's going to cost. These are the options for getting there. You know, all of that sort of thing. But you can't question the direction and the and the objective that they're doing. Um, but you know, it's it's slightly easy to make that comment if there's a decision made or not made. Then it's because officials didn't provide strong enough advice. In our democracy, the responsibility for the decisions, as opposed to the policy process, and I think that's something which is often conflated in public discussion. The policy processes are quite different from the decision-making processes, and the responsibility for the decision always rests with the minister or with cabinet. That is absolutely undeniable. And surely they need to have good advice and free and frank advice, but if in the end it's a political judgment that ministers go with, that's the responsibility of ministers. So... Do you have any sort of ideas on things that could be improved in the public service or the machinery of government or our democracy? Are yeah. there anything that you would... Well, it depends, depends how many hours you've got. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but they're organic processes, you know, yeah. and they continue to... I think a plurality of views is really important. I mean, when I spoke to the, the people who were look, re, looking into the review of local government, I was invited or to, to meet them for a conversation, I said, you know, the thing about local government is it's local and it should reflect what happens and what's required and the attributes and the strengths and weaknesses of local communities across the country. And that would really mean that a single solution uh, produced in Wellington is appropriate. Now, obviously, there are certain basic legal parameters and stuff which should be established for local government in Wellington which apply across the nation. But you want to provide a system which is going to create um, and nourish as much diversity and local strength and local leadership as possible. And that's the nature of of a democracy, you know. It's not about centralised power, it's about devolved power and shared decision-making. But there is that sense at the moment, especially in local government, that some of that power is being centralised in terms of local government reforms or three waters or politics or or whatever, health reforms. Um, Do you have a view on on that? Well, uh, you know, as a public servant, I will say to you, Bryce, you know, if the government of the day has decided... Mm on the basis of a process and the, having received the advice that they want to centralise all of the polytechnics, that is the decision they made. And even now, I will not talk about those things publicly. I still have a, a role at Parliament, as you know. I have a view on them, but I never share it. Okay. You know, And not, not all decisions that are made by Cabinet or ministers or governments turn out to be good ones in the long run, and then another government has to come along and change them. So that's, that's the nature of a democracy. You know, you, mm. you have the thing, somebody takes the decision and they move in that direction until somebody else changes it. And that, that's the robust nature of democratic and tolerant discourse. I mean, we have, by international standards, we have a very tolerant and vibrant, as one of my APEC colleagues told me when he came in 1999, this is a very noisy little democracy, Martin. And he said, I love that. Because that's what it should be, you know. Indeed. We don't have tanks on the forecourt of Parliament, as they have in lots of other countries. We don't have, you know, terrible, you know, disputes with, with neighbours and, and abuse of the rule of law. And that's really, really important. So what is your role at Parliament? Uh, I am the 
registrar of pecuniary interests of members of parliament, have been since 2013. And so is that just an administrative role? Each year, according to standing orders, which were established in 2005, all members of parliament are required to list all of their assets and uh, liabilities, uh, any gifts they may have received over the previous year above a certain value, any travel they may have undertaken, mm. which was paid for other than by the Crown, and you know any shareholdings and trusts they're involved mm. in, so that the public know what the interests of those members are, so that when decisions are made by the House, they know there might, whether or not there might be a conflict of interest and that people might be making decisions that favour entities with which yeah. they're associated. And it's been a great innovation for transparency yeah, in it was the a political bit, process. It was a bit late coming in New Zealand, yeah, to be was. frank. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I'm very pleased that members of all parties take that process seriously and they give it their support. In do you find they're begrudging in any way? Do you have to chase them up? Occasionally, you know, with the deadline's getting closer, we have to say, listen, you've only got a week left to do it. It's a good process. How much faith do you think the public can have that what we see in that registrar reflects reality? Because I know there's all sorts of trusts that are kind of listed in those rather than, I seem to remember John Key's blind trusts. and They have to follow the requirements which are set down standing orders. Mm. And... If members don't do that correctly, then there are channels for which they can be brought before the Privileges Committee, which is a pretty serious matter. But, you know, there's a balance there between the private interests of mm. members, which are legitimate, you know, so that they, they have to list whether they have real property, in other words, uh, a residence, uh, and how many, and that sort of thing, and, and where they are in broad terms, but they don't have to list their street address. And similarly for trusts, you know, uh, you have to, members of parliament have to list whether they are trustees of a trust or a beneficiary and those are two very very different roles the trust is a separate legal entity so all they have to declare is the fact that they have an interest in that trust and that can be then pursued by the media or other people Mm. but the parliament only needs to know that such and such a member is a trust of a conservation organization in Taitafati and then that's in the public domain and it doesn't need to be declared to the house at other times, say, when some conservation legislation comes up relating to the East Coast. Okay. So that, that's above board and everybody knows that that's there. Okay, so it's a robust process that works pretty well at the moment. It works pretty well okay. and it works with the support and consent of the members, you know, mm-hmm. which is really, really important. Okay. You know, thinking about democracy, sometimes I feel that we don't have enough civil society involvement in politics in regard to things like, uh, you know, think tanks and various, even societal lobby groups, if you like. Yeah. And I noticed that you're a, a member, uh, you're involved in the Aspen Institute of yeah. New Zealand, so I just wondered if you could talk about that yeah. and, and whether it has a political aspect. Well, the Aspen Institute was established in New Zealand only a few years ago through a joint initiative led by Don McKinnon and Helen Clark. The critical thing about the Aspen Institute, which has a very proud history, was founded shortly after the war in the United States in Aspen, Colorado. So it's an international... Um, well, it started off originally as an American thing, and now gradually they've, they've sought to support similar institutes in other countries. The thing is that they are resolutely apolitical, non-political, non-partisan, okay. and they're there to discuss... Uh, and to foment and uh, facilitate discussions. And the United States website, if you look at this extraordinary range of programs and programs for youth and for inner city dwellers, and, you know, they deal with environment and social questions and economic questions. Um, But it's a forum for the polite and respectful and robust discourse amongst people about what issues are, but not there to provide a, a bully pulpit for people to talk about only their point of view. The critical thing is it's about listening to other people who, with whom you disagree as well as discussing. 
Helen Clark and, and Don McKinnon uh, brought a process together a few years ago with some people they thought might be interested in New Zealand to say we're a bit short in New Zealand, as you say, on think tanks. And the great thing about Aspen is it provides us with links into other think tanks. The links would have been more able to be used if we didn't have a pandemic, which is a pity. But it's growing and it's its early stages. And um, we've been holding a number of seminars and discussions with people to just encourage them to draw on practice in other countries. What are we going to do about these types of issues? We're looking at things like artificial intelligence, uh, the environment, trade, anything really. It's a very open process and that's the point of it, to have a, a respected forum where people can exchange and challenge each other's ideas without coming to a conclusion to say this is the answer. This is the policy. Okay, yeah. so, so it's outside a political process. Okay, and so um, we're you know, living in an age at the moment where there's a lot of concerns about the quality of political debate and information and yeah. discourse. What else can we do as a society? What's your kind of observations after being in the thick of the of political Wellington? Um, you know, where do you think things well, are going? Well, I, I think one of the we I think, I think the really important things are to protect and sustain. Uh, our existing institutions. You know, it's about ensuring that the court system works well, that we have a, a strong and trusted police force that's properly resourced, mm-hmm. that we make sure that we've got health governance going. Lots of things you can do. It'd be nice to have or really urgent. But if you lose trust of the public in the basic aspects of how our democracy runs, tolerance, respect for other people's views, uh, social discourse, which uh, doesn't turn to, to hate, you've, you've got a long way to come back. So I think... I would always encourage people to make sure that the parliament, the courts, the police, the education system are on very, very sound foundations and that they are improved uh, as much as they can be. I mean, we've got far too many agencies in the New Zealand public service, in so the government you, system. So you would merge some? You would well, consolidate? Well, I think there, there, are, there, are, there are a range of options. You know, I just think it, it, it makes it more complex. Some of them are very, very small. Uh, it's a bit like local government. We've got some very, very small councils. People don't like the words merger or things because they see them as takeover. Mm. But I think it's really difficult to provide the right level of service and to get the right talent into micro-agencies because they just don't have the critical mass. So I think that's something that you need to constantly... It's a bit like a university. You know, If you have a proliferation of too many courses, mm. you diffuse your focus and your energy. I think focus is a very good thing. Focus on the eight or ten things that really matter and a lot of other things will fall into place. doesn't mean to say that they're not important, um, and there's a role for the private sector and philanthropy and that sort of stuff as well, but if you don't do the basics well, you are certainly going to have problems. Okay. You know, and so things like governance really matter, good leadership, recruiting the right talent, providing paths for people um, who haven't previously been in organisations from underrepresented groups to come in and be successful, providing an open and welcoming environment in your enterprise, whatever it is, whether it's a social enterprise, an NGO, a government agency, a private business, a media organisation, reflect the community that we're in um, because that will enable you to to secure mm. an enduring social licence to operate because without those social parameters being accepted, you end up with you know difficulty and tension. Okay, thanks for all of that, Sir Martin. I think there's a lot for us to think about, and you've you've obviously got a wealth of information, observations, analysis that you know from these decades being involved in public life and from the university. Thank you, Sir Martin. I hope we can see you it's again on campus because you've got a lot to contribute. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. 
thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.